everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, the new-ish, this will be the third episode uh, of our second podcast, companion podcast, I don't know what you want to call it, twin podcast, twin journey through time, through DC Comics history, uh, starting from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. And uh, we're in the third episode, we're going to read some some interesting comics uh, this week. Uh, all about, all about the big, you know, members of the big seven. We've got, uh, we've got Wonder Woman number 324. We're going to briefly summarize Amethyst number four. Uh, obviously Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld is not part of the big seven. That would make that book a lot weirder or that iteration of the Justice League a lot weirder. But, uh, I'll talk about that when, uh, we get to Amethyst number four. Batman number 382, and Flash number 344, and this is a different Flash than uh, listeners of the Golden Age issue by issue uh, will have heard about, so that'll be exciting. Um, uh, But let's first set the scene. Uh, Last episode of of issue by issue crisis, we didn't have any real world history because all of them uh, all of the issues covered were still being published on January 3rd, so the cu- the history from the first episode of Issue by Issue Crisis still works for the second episode. But this episode, we have some uh, issues uh, published on January 10th, so uh, about a week later uh, than uh, the previous issues. So let's talk about the history that was happening up to that date. So let's get into that. January 7th, 1985, film star Yul Brenner, probably best well known for uh, playing the King of Siam in The King of King and I, and also if you're a uh, Christian in The Ten Commandments, if you watch that every Easter, or The Magnificent Seven, or the original Westworld from 1973. Uh, he was suffering from terminal lung cancer. He appeared on the U.S. television program Good Morning America and vowed to make a public service announcement to deter others from smoking. Because smoking is bad, kids. Uh, So don't do it. Uh, January 8th, 1985, Mary Lou Lou Retton, who is actually in the news at this moment um, due to some sickness, uh, American gymnast who won the hearts of the U.S. at the 1984 Summer Olympics, is named the Associate Press Female Athlete of the Year. So that's exciting for her. And finally, uh, January 10th, 1985, Sandinista Daniel Ortega becomes president of Nicaragua and vows to continue the transformation towards socialism and uh, ally the country with the Soviet Union and Cuba. American policy continues to support the Contras in their revolt against the Nicaraguan government. Now, this will eventually lead to the Iran-Contra affair, uh, dealing with um, Oliver North and and Ronald Reagan and selling weapons illegally, all that kind of stuff. But that'll we'll deal with that when it comes up in about uh, eight months real-world time, uh, when when uh, we're in August of 1985. But that's what's that's some of the big headlines that are happening during the time that these issues are. Being released, being published, put on newsstands. Uh, so let's get into the actual issues. And we're going to start with Wonder Woman number 324, released January 3rd, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. Like uh, all issues in this uh series are going to have they're going to have a lot of debuts to the podcast, but not necessarily characters who are debuting for the first time 
in you know, these issues. So let's talk about a few here. Obviously, we've met Wonder Woman. We met her last episode when she was in uh, the Justice League of America title uh, alongside Superman and Barry Allen the Flash. But we've also got introduced in this uh, issue of Wonder Woman uh, Atomic Knight, uh, otherwise known as Gardner Grail. He is a, uh, a man with... Uh, Cassandra-like premonition abilities, Cassandra being the figure from Greek mythology who can see the future but have nobody uh, believe her and her her predictions. Uh, Gardner Grail, and he'll explain a little bit of his backstory in this issue, has premonition abilities, but they're only about events that will cause the world to, uh, you know, fall into nuclear catastrophe, nuclear winter... Uh, all this kind of stuff, anything to do with nuclear energy. It's 1985. Nuclear energy is a really big deal. The uh, Chernobyl disaster hasn't happened yet. It's about still a year and a half off, so there's not that sort of fear around nuclear energy that there will be post-Chernobyl disaster. So that's that's kind of the reason why his whole shtick is his whole shtick, you know. Also debuting for the first time on the podcast is Steve Trevor, uh, companion, lover, partner of Wonder Woman. Uh, he debuted in the exact same issue as she did back in 1941, which is, you know, it's weird we're meeting we're meeting Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor here in the Crisis show rather than in the Golden Age because we haven't gotten to 1941 yet. But uh, he debuts in this one. He's a, always a very important part to Wonder Woman's stories, at least up until, like, in the New 52, they, you know, their relationship's all weird. But we'll get to that eventually in, you know, 40 years or whatever. Uh, we also have Etta Candy. She makes a short little cameo. She's taking a little sleep. She's also a companion to Wonder Woman, um, more of like a sort of sidekick, but not a sidekick that, you know, dons a costume like Robin. Uh, but more of just like a, a friend and, and companion. And we also meet Hippolyta quickly, briefly, uh, on Paradise Island, which is where Wonder Woman is from originally. Uh, she is Wonder Woman's mother and the leader of Paradise Island. So let's talk about the issue itself. It uh, was written by Dan Mishkin, uh, drawn by Don Heck, uh, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Nancy Houlihan. Uh, so let's get into the issue. So the issue, the cover is great, uh, I think. It has a very, very detailed drawing of the new Atomic Knight. Now, this is still... Gardner Grail was also the original Atomic Knight, but this, he has new armor in this one. Something happened to his old armor. Now he's got new stuff that he has stolen from Star Labs. We've got Wonder Woman there, and and, and it says... You'll, you've seen him here first, the new Atomic Knight. Only Wonder Woman defies his very first mission. And, of course, this is a self-appointed mission. He is not um, a part of any sort of organization. He's a solo agent. Uh, the issue starts out with a huge explosion. Uh, and it just says, Again, the frozen earth is sundered. The tundra heaves just as it did three quarters of a century ago. But now its repercussions will be felt. Now, that is something that will come back later, that information. I was very confused when I first read it. I was like, hmm, weird. I didn't know if it was stuff that you needed to know from previous issues, but it's not. So, Or I guess it only somewhat is. Uh, And next is some information that you do need to know about previous issues 
to to know about and I'll explain it. So a young girl, you know, is banging at this door and the door opens and uh, a a middle-aged woman, uh, a mother figure opens the door and this young woman who is named Michelle, she is, you know, kind of ranting and and, and raving about, uh, you know, something happened to Eloise and Mark and everybody and they're all gone and uh, we learned that Eloise is the daughter to this woman, Lisa Abernathy. Lisa Abernathy is a political reporter on uh, GBS, which is uh, Galaxy Broadcasting. And then the S, I don't know what it stands for. But it's it's the company that, at this point in time, has bought the Daily Planet and made Clark Kent a news reporter on, on the air, like an anchor, not a, uh, not a newspaper man. Um, so back to the story. Um, and I'm very confused about this. This is something that that occurred at the end of last issue, these children disappearing. Uh, it was like at the very end, it didn't really have anything to do with the story. It has something to do with this little alien gremlin guy who has been hanging out with Steve Trevor for about 10 issues. And uh, we'll, we'll figure out what that is later in the issue. Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, overhears this and... Uh, she deduces that it has something to do with um, the little alien that Steve Trevor is um, hanging out with, uh, who is being called Glitch. Um, Diana Prince uh, transforms into Wonder Woman uh, and runs through Etta Candy's room. They they all live in this house together, or, or near like our, our neighbors. Or the living situation is important. Etta Candy is sleeping, and that's the only part she plays in this issue. She's sleeping, and Wonder Woman uses her window to leave the house. Wonder Woman then flies. Uh, she would use her plane, uh, although I don't know why, because she's only flying to a different part of town. Um, but she mentions that Steve has used uh, the robot plane. So he's using it right now. She then goes downtown to where the kids were hanging out, um, and she finds this sort of invisible field uh, accidentally, because a dog jumps through it and disappears, and then Wonder Woman grabs his leash and pulls him back out, and she realizes that it, it's a sort of echo, a teleportation echo from the teleportation beam used by whoever, you know, teleported these kids away, and and glitched the the alien. And she, uh, you know, gives the dog back to his owner, and she says. You know, you should probably call the cops and have them cordon off this area. This seems dangerous for the people to just be, like, going through teleportation echoes. And so she kind of, she widens it by using her strength because it's, you know, closing because it's an echo. So eventually it will fade. And she walks through and she's suddenly transported to high up in the air above uh, the Arctic. Uh, And she realizes, yes, that teleportation effect came from a spacecraft. But it, instead of taking it to where the ship is, it took it for, to where the teleportation happened. So she is high above the Arctic Circle, so she's flying, uh, doing Wonder Woman things. And she actually sees Steve in her robot plane. And I don't know if it's called a robot plane because it can talk, because it can. Uh, but I always thought it was an invisible jet because in the the last issue of Justice League of America... She was flying in an invisible jet. You just see the flash and her like sitting there. Um, but I guess maybe she's got multiple. You know, maybe she's got more than one plane. One's invisible and one's a robot. So 
we see we we see into the plane and Steve Trevor's in there and he's flying it and he's talking to the plane and he's being chased by two um, Russian fighter jets and they are uh, using a new type of technology where instead of you know being able to locate planes on radar stuff like that because the robot plane is invisible to um, detect detection they are uh, focusing on the slipstream caused by air travel so. Um, it's a very fun and I don't know if possible uh, technology, but that's that's fun. Uh, so he's he's worried because they're going to shoot missiles at him. They they have shot missiles at him, and he's there's no way he's going to be able to outrun these missiles because they are locked in on his slipstream. Uh, so he'll never be able to get away. When uh, he actually says, uh, "Unless I've got a guardian angel looking out for me," where and then dot dot, he's probably going to say a swear or something. But a giant snowball is thrown through the air, and it kind of uh, takes the attention of the missiles away from uh, the robot plane because it, it flies through his slipstream. So it has its own slipstream because it's flying through the air, and then the missiles go after it. And he sees that it's Wonder Woman. He's very excited. He lands the plane, and they talk. Wonder Woman's wondering why he's in Soviet airspace. Uh, well, why is she in Soviet airspace, too? And he talks about the giant explosion that we saw at the beginning of the issue. And they talk about something called the Tunguska uh, Blast of 1908. And I looked it up, and it's an actual event that happened in 1908 in the Tunguska region of Russia. And it happened randomly on June 30th, 1908. And it is a blast released enough energy to kill reindeer and flatten an estimated 80 million trees over an area of 830 square miles. Witnesses reported seeing a fireball, a bluish light, nearly as bright as the sun, moving across the sky. So it's it's hypothesized that it's a, a spacecraft crashing to the Earth. And that's also what Steve Trevor says here. Uh, but like if you think about it, 1908, there's nothing that nothing that could be that powerful at that point. It's really weird. Uh, and who knows? Uh, who knows what's up with that? But uh, they put it together that it's clearly the gremlins who are uh, the race of aliens that glitch this little guy. It's very silly. I just don't think that Wonder Woman should deal with space. It just feels like it clashes so much with her like sort of theme, aesthetic, genre, you know? It just feels weird. I mean, I guess maybe you think about it as, as her being like a person of antiquity, maybe, and it's confl- conflict with the future, but... I don't know. I just think aliens just really aren't her thing. It's like when Batman deals with aliens. We don't need it. We then cut to Gardner Grail, uh, the Atomic Knight, uh, talking about his new uh, his new armor and his mission uh, to stop a, a conflict over, uh, coincidentally, for this issue, uh, at the place of the explosion that we were just talking about, that uh, choices made and things done there will cause the start of World War III. Uh, Not a great thing for anyone involved. Uh, On his way there, he is uh, tormented by Cassandra, the the woman from uh, Greek myth, who, uh, during the Siege of Troy, gained the ability to see the future, uh, but no one believes her. It's her whole thing. Um, He says that only the Atomic Knight can save the world. We then have a sort of little interstitial uh, scene with two military types at the Pentagon, Pentagon 
uh, and Lisa Abernathy comes with uh, Senator Covington, who's uh, we've never met before, and I don't know how important he is to the story, uh, where it's revealed that uh, Lisa's child and her friends were sort of kidnapped or vanished uh, while being in contact with a small little alien creature, Glitch, who has been a companion of Steve Trevor, Colonel Trevor, who is under the supervision of this general. Uh, That's all for this interstitial. You know, Lisa Abernathy leaves with her head down, sad that her daughter has been taken. Uh, We we go back to uh, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. They're now in the robot plane, and they're flying towards the explosion site. And uh, as they're on their way there, they are hit with a sort of stasis field by the Atomic Knight because he knows that they're involved through his premonitions uh, with the events that cause the catastrophe, the World War III nuclear winter, uh, the end of humanity as we know it. He's So he's holding them in a stasis field. Wonder Woman, she opens up the, the lid, uh, the... Uh, glass. I don't know what it's called on a fighter jet, like the the windshield, the windscreen on the robot plane, and using her Amazon bracelets and her strength, uh, she sort of absorbs the stasis field energy coming out of the Atomic Knight's armor and shoots it back at him. He sort of is uh, pushed back, but his stabilizers kick in, keeping him in the air. He is then tormented again by Cassandra, uh, you know, they're like, why would anyone believe you, Gardner Grail? You know, why would believe your second sight is real? Only people who have, have it themselves will believe you. And we then see Wonder Woman. She's like, wait a minute, Steve. I know that woman. And Steve's like, what woman? All I see is that oddball having a conversation with the air. And Wonder Woman's like, but can't you? What? Then suddenly a piercing wail fills the air And I'm not sure, it's not really explained if that's from the Atomic Knight or if it's from something else. I think it has to be from the Atomic Knight because then in the next panel he is swooping down to, you know, kind of maybe knock out Wonder Woman, uh, make sure that she doesn't do whatever she's going to do to cause catastrophe. She sort of rolls onto her back and kicks him with two feet and then instructs her robot plane to sort of do a barrel roll and like, bat him away with one of the wings it's pretty cool and he lands uh, or no he's uh, he's going to land very fast into the ground wonder woman not knowing if his armor can protect him from such a thing catches him and lays him on the ground uh he's knocked out from the wing and they they then cut to a little bit later when he is waking up and basically he explains to uh wonder woman and steve trevor that he has Uh, The gift of prophecy. He has the second sight. He has premonitions, predictions about things that no one would believe. And then, you know, Wonder Woman says, oh, that's the woman you were talking to, Cassandra, uh, from from Greek, from ancient times, she says, because she's a real person in this world. I was about to say Greek mythology, but that Wonder Woman is technically uh, connected to Greek mythology, so it's real stuff. Gardner Grail then explains sort of his whole deal he explains that he was a, uh, a guinea pig for a computer simulation experiment to test how well soldiers would function after an atomic holocaust. There is a little um, asterisk to tell you what it's referencing. It is referencing the issue DC Comics Presents number 57, which is where Gardner Grail debuts. Uh, he then explains that 
the whole thing went wrong and he was trapped in this sort of heroic fantasy leading a band of atomic knights and after he was freed his brain with this long interaction with the computer get got predictive capabilities so it's not really sort of that he gets prophecies but he can sort of see like predictive models you know that they do uh with computers and and can predict what actions will chain react into another things there's also another asterisk here uh for when he's talking about a band of atomic knights uh it is referencing uh strange adventures which is a series of comics that was started in 1915 until 1973 it had things like adam strange and the atomic knights and, and stuff of a science fiction sort of uh bent to it Suddenly, they are cut off from hearing the rest of Gardner Grail's story when uh, a group of Soviet soldiers parachute in uh, from a plane up in the sky. And Steve Trevor makes a very funny joke. He says, hey, I'd love to hear the rest of this, but I'm afraid I've got a prediction of my own. Our geese are about to be cooked. Get it? He's predicting, even though it's like, well, that's obvious. Then we cut to uh, more than 20,000 miles straight up. Uh, in a spaceship where uh, we see the group of children who have been uh, sort of teleported away uh, from Earth and uh, the little gremlin glitch. He looks a lot like, um, oh, uh, Brainiac 5 from the Legion of Superheroes. He is a green alien wearing a sort of purplish, pinkish suit, pant suit sort of situation. And he's got blonde hair, which is like, that's Brainiac 5 if I've ever seen a Brainiac 5 before. And he is talking to, behind bars, they're all caged, these these three children and, and Glitch are caged, and he's talking to these sort of bigger humanoid-looking aliens. And the first one he's talking to looks like he raided Big Barda's closet and is wearing her whole, her whole thing, uh, which is funny because Big Barda debuted uh, about 14 ish years before this so like she's a thing that is around the dc universe and it's it's crazy how much these aliens look like they're wearing you know like fourth world big barda uniforms um or outfits it's very funny and basically these big aliens are mad at glitch for stealing their star cruiser uh glitch and his people uh stole it uh we learned that glitch's people are sort of like a slave class in this society who are like technical people they they do like the the nitty-gritty piloting repair stuff like that and uh glitch makes up a story about how he was frozen in a block of ice for many years and uh he only he you know just melted so he doesn't know where everybody else went all these other gremlins uh, and, and he asks, you know, are, are any on board? And they say, no, they uh, rebelled against these bigger aliens and they left for a world that we have not yet located. Glitch then says, oh, no, that's terrible. Um, after all the things that you've done for my people. Um, and he asks, like, oh, you came all this way for just one crashed cruiser? Because, I mean, they must be from very many light years away or whatever. And it's, no, they came for the device that the Star Cruiser had on it, which is the Phlogiston Bomb. The Phlogiston Bomb, uh, says Glitch with shock. 
He doesn't explain what that is, but he says that him and his three companions would be able to help out because they're qualified technical support, since there's no gremlins on board and, uh, to do the technical work. Uh, and that's a sort of way for them to get out. I should mention that throughout this conversation, instead of saying things like gremlin or you know this, this race of a- bigger aliens, they have been saying their names, but it just seems like someone took uh, like uh, maybe their cat and had it walk across the keyboard. It's like, that's what our alien race shall be called. It's like Itterflurks is one, and what's the other one? Yeah, and the word for the gremlins race is like what is that that's nothing that's just uh, your cat walked across the keyboard and you're like that looks great that looks like aliens but back to it so he has he has volunteered himself and his three child companions to be the technical support as a way to get out of this cage and, and that's all we'll see of them uh this issue uh thank goodness we then cut to paradise island uh, where we learn that the purple ray uh, went wild. Uh, the purple ray is a, a ray that heals the Amazons. And uh, Paradise Island was kind of destroyed a bit, like all the buildings and stuff were destroyed uh, in the process. And um, Paula and Sophia, two Amazons, have come to Hippolyta uh, to tell her that the work is proceeding quickly. And uh, Paradise Island will be just as it was. And uh, Sophia, you know, tells Paula, hey, you know, she, she, she's, she wants to be left alone right now. She's, like, sad or whatever. And Hippolyta says to uh, Sophia after Paula has left that the buildings may be uh, just as they once were, but I doubt that Paradise Island will be, ever be the same after what I have done to Diana and what she did to me in kind. And this is stuff that happened in previous issues in like 322 and, and previous. And uh, that's all that that little sort of uh, interstitial scene is, is just uh, telling us that, that Hippolyta and, and Wonder Woman have hurt each other badly, which happens between a mother and a daughter sometimes, you know. But we then cut back to Wonder Woman, Steve Trevor, and the Atomic Knight. And they are surrounded by Russian military. And they're like, you know, hey, you American pigs, uh, what are you doing in our country? You know, like we're gonna we're gonna seize you and and you know capture you because you're in our territory. And you're not allowed to be. And we see that uh, the Atomic Knight gets a premonition uh, that there's two futures that are more likely than um, others, and they both have to deal with Steve Trevor being killed in the near future, like from this exchange between the Russian soldiers and these three people, uh, Wonder Woman, Tom Knight, and Steve Trevor. And so in one, it looks like Steve Trevor is killed. Russian planes then fly over the Pentagon, and uh, the president, who is Ronald Reagan, presses the button in the nuclear football to uh, send off a atomic warhead. Uh, there's another one that looks like Wonder Woman gets so angry because of Steve's death that she flies her robot plane and uh, like attacks Russians, and then uh, the the leader of the USSR uses their nuclear football to uh, you know send out a nuclear strike. 
So either way, a nuclear strike will happen, which will then lead to mutually assured destruction uh, by the other group sending out their own. And then we get nuclear winter death of uh, humanity uh, or the vast majority of humanity and uh, a bad time for everyone involved. So uh, after seeing this atomic night jumps and sort of like pushes Steve Trevor to the ground out of any possible bullet fire and then jumps up into the air or flies up into the air, I should say, uh, to get the attention of the Russians. It's working. Uh, he shoots them or he shoots the ice with one of his atomic rays, uh, which sort of melts the ice. So it's getting and I mean, and they're in the Arctic. So uh, probably not a lot of land under there, if any. Um, although this is Russia, so there probably is land underneath. But the ice is the ice and snow is very thick. So, you know, you melt some of it, you start to sink in. Uh, the Russians start to shoot at Atomic Knight, and then Atomic Knight uses uh, a freeze ray that he j has just revealed that he has to freeze the feet of these Russian soldiers into the snow and ice, uh, possibly forcing them later on to have their feet uh, amputated due to severe frostbite. So that's not great for them. Steve Trevor then gets in on the fight um, because even though this Atomic Knight is uh, a loon, a certifiable loon, he's their loon, so he's got to protect them. Uh, Wonder Woman doesn't want to fight. She's she's being like she's being very non-aggressive. She's only you know dodging or not dodging. Well, yeah, I guess she is dodging and blocking bullets with her bracelets, and sort of non-lethally, uh, you know, dealing with these soldiers. Steve gets behind their commander, and has a gun, you know, held to him like you know arm around the neck, and then a gun to the to the head as a sort of like, hey, I've got you as a hostage. And uh, uh, this, you know, the Russian soldiers are sort of at a standstill, but Atomic Knight is still worried that, uh, you know, Trevor is still in the line of fire and he's got to get out of here because his life is, you know, the, the linchpin in, in the sort of future events that cause nuclear catastrophe. So he is rushing towards him to grab him. Wonder Woman lassos Atomic Knight's arm away and uh, throws him to the ground, and she says, I can't rely on prophets, Knight. I have to do what my conscience dictates, which means, like, hey, we got to stop attacking each other. Steve makes a quip about how the whole world isn't like Paradise Island. He's a soldier, and these are his enemies uh, in a Cold War, you know, so really shouldn't be doing such aggressive, hot actions. Uh, but he listens to Wonder Woman. She, he says, you know, it's not a bad idea, I guess, to show a little faith sometimes. Immediately upon being released, the commander of this sort of brigade says, seize him. And so the Russian soldiers grab Steve Trevor, um, and, and they're going to kill him. And Wonder Woman says, stop, you can't. But before they can, uh, well, first, Atomic Knight thinks, but they will. Steve Trevor will die, and then there will be no stopping the events that I've predicted. He sort of trails off because at that moment, in the sky above them appears the spaceship with the unpronounceable aliens inside. And it, it announces, Surrender all forces. This area is under the dominion of the Itterflerk Armada. Your world will, be sh will shortly be in our complete control. And following our mission here, it will be destroyed. 
So that's the end of that issue. It says a little blurb at the end. says, next, a very strong likelihood of the end of the world in an adventure that includes the amazing Amazon, the Atomic Knight, the Russians, the aliens, and the Gremlin from the Kremlin, which is just a fun little... Uh, little rhyme there, and it also makes me think that they're calling him a gremlin so that they could eventually make that sort of joke of a gremlin in the Kremlin. So that's that's a thing that has happened. Uh, but yeah, that's the that's the Wonder Woman issue. Uh, it'll be nice when we get past this uh, silly alien stuff, and you know we can just deal with I don't know Cheetah. I, I feel like Cheetah's a good foil for Wonder Woman, but we'll we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there in a while, I guess. We gotta wait for we gotta wait for Wonder Woman 325 to come up, and uh, and luckily Wonder Woman. This is just a little preview. Wonder Woman is one of the first series to reboot after the the um, Crisis on Infinite Earths Infinite Earths storyline, you know, concludes. Because I, I think I said in the first issue or the first episode of this podcast that the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot is a rolling reboot. It's not like a hard, everyone starts, you know, on the same day. It, it, you know, over time, they all reboot over the course of a couple years, a couple, three years. But Wonder Woman, I believe, is one of the first ones to reboot. So that'll be, you know, we'll get through this and then we'll start from the beginning again. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. But uh, let's move on to... Um, Amethyst number four. Uh, now, Amethyst number four, we'll go through all this stuff. Amethyst number four it was released January 10th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. Debuting on the podcast is Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. She is uh, the, the princess of Gemworld, another reality outside of the standard, you know, DC universe that we think of as like Earth 1, Earth 2 kind of situation. But she is... I don't want to say unimportant, but she is just so sporadically introduced into the fiction. Like, this series, this Amethyst series, only goes about 12 issues, and then it's done. Likely due to Crisis on Infinite Earth sort of resetting everything. And then she doesn't really get another actual ongoing series, uh, basically until ever. She never gets one. All the rest of them are limited series of, like, four issues or six issues or these really short things um or like she got she took over the sorcery the sword of sorcery title during the new 52 for like a f i don't i think maybe only a handful of issues maybe i think more than 10 but not a lot and she's just not very involved with things that's changed in the recent years she was a part of young justice she had another limited series run uh but at this point, she's not really, really important. So I'm just going to, you know, comment that she had an issue coming out, and we'll talk about the uh, who wrote the issue and all that kind of stuff. But it just doesn't feel like a good use of our time, since we have so many issues to go through, to be focusing, you know, the 20 or so minutes that typically takes us to go through one of these more modern comics on something that is so inconsequential unconsequential to the dc universe as a whole you know so uh this issue uh was written by dan mishkin uh and gary Cohn, uh, penciled by kurt schaffenberger inked by romeo tangle or tongle lettered by john costanza and colored by carl gafford um so that's all we're gonna say about amethyst number four sorry all the amethyst fans i just don't 
I just don't see the the point, I guess. Uh, next up is going to be Batman number 382, uh, released January 10th, number 19, number 1985, 1985, cover date April 1985. Uh, so we have some debuts to the podcast, obviously. Um, these are not their actual debuts. We have Robin, which, like, I know what you're saying, Nick, uh, Robin debuted in episode 9 of Crisis on Infinite Earths Golden Age. This is clearly not the first time he's been on the podcast. Well, you're right about that. You are right about that. But that's not this Robin. This is not Dick Grayson Robin. This is uh, Robin Jason Todd. Because if you remember from last episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, Robin is now Nightwing. So, uh, or Dick Grayson is now Nightwing. So, n- new Robin happens, and that is Jason Todd, um, a controversial figure, uh, certainly in in DC Comics. Um, you either love him or hate him, I guess. Um, we also have Catwoman, which is, which is such a, like not not poor timing, but just like a poor coincidence that on the episode of issue by issue, I'm pretty sure that comes out after this issue episode of issue by issue Crisis. Catwoman will debut legitimately the Golden Age era. Uh, Catwoman will debut, but. She'll make her debut on the podcast for the first time here uh, in in Batman 382. And then we also have Vicki Vale, uh, who's a reporter uh, and love interest at times to uh, Bruce Wayne Batman. Uh, this issue of Batman was written by Steve Mitchell, penciled by Rick Hoberg, inked by Rudy D. Nebrez, and lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Adrian Roy or Waugh, if they're French or French-Canadian. Uh, so let's get into it. And first thing that we need to do before getting into it is to talk about the cover. Uh, it is, it's got uh, Batman, it's separated, so it's Bat, Space, Man, and it's got the Bat symbol with uh, Batman's head in there. He's kind of sort of like a uh, Batman-Bat hybrid thing. It looks very weird. Uh, which I will say a lot uh, about this art in this one. I don't know if it's just a, a weird scan that they have on DC Universe or what, but a lot of the art looks pretty bad. Uh, so that's that's unfortunate. Uh, the cover itself is weird because it has nothing to do with the actual story. It says, In Search of Catwoman. And it has a giant Batman sort of looming down and like reaching his hand out at these what look like regular citizens. Uh, running away there's fire in the background uh one of the citizens is trying to shoot batman uh it it could be a metaphor but having read the story i don't really see how it is but we'll just leave it at that uh because uh, the important stuff's on the inside that's what they always say uh and this is a, a sort of weird situation uh this comic or this issue starts with a prologue and it says the night began with a black panther on the prowl which is a weird way to start uh so there is a black panther and it it savagely uh attacks and kills a mugger and uh his victim because wild animals they don't discern right from wrong you know criminal from innocent they'll just kill whoever they feel like we then cut to batman and robin they're in the batmobile and I will say that this is a, the like an I didn't realize that the older sort of uh, Batman sixty six style you know double sort of 
rounded windshield thing uh, lasted so long into the 80s, but um, I guess it's not really Batman 1966. It's just not what I would think of as the Batmobile. It kind of looks, it looks very 80s, I will say that. Uh, It looks like, I guess I'd probably equate it to maybe an older style of vehicle from the 80s like maybe an 80s mustang sort of front uh it it looks it looks weird it doesn't look like a batmobile to me which is fair because i haven't read a lot of comics from the 80s so that's fair batman and robin who is jason todd not dick grayson they have been brought to a hostage situation a, a villain known as dark wolf he has taken six hostages in the uh egyptian embassy in gotham and uh, he is calling for the release of Syrian prisoners uh, from Egyptian prisons. Uh, Egypt has refused. They are probably people that work inside the embassy, so they're likely Egyptian citizens. But uh, I guess I, if I was a country, I don't know. You're not supposed to you know, negotiate with terrorists. That's always the thing. But, I mean, they're your citizens. So, but Batman and Robin deal with this hostage situation sort of in a truncated form we see robin rescuing the hostages we don't see how he did it and we see batman battling dark wolf uh but dark wolf gets a grenade off and blows up the building or the floor that they're on and darkwing darkwing duck no dark wolf uh escapes uh on a sort of paraglider uh hang glider and uh and glides away i he later thinks that he's killed batman but i mean batman if he would have just if dark wolf would have just turned around he would have seen uh batman alive uh we then cut to at that same moment uh reporter julia remark oh that's funny and photographer vicky vale so when i said that vicky vale was a reporter um that was only she's a reporter in later instances but i guess right now she is is a photographer so that's on me that's on me. That's my bad. So they're they're on the the hunt for this panther because it's going to be a good story, you know. Like well, that's weird. What a weird thing to happen. A panther just running around Gotham City. It's weird. They find the panther and are you know holding up a stick to defend themselves from it when a, a cat of nine tails or a whip as we know it uh, grabs onto the big stick that they're holding and wrenches it out of their hands. And who, who do we know that uses a whip? Well, if you've only listened to this podcast and know nothing about DC Comics, you don't know a single person because she hasn't been introduced yet in issue by issue, Golden Age. Uh, but it's Catwoman. Catwoman uh, typically uses a whip as a weapon, and this is no different. Now, we then get a page of sort of the title page with all of the you know writing credits and drawing credits, all the credits for the creators. And it's like a big page, single page panel of Catwoman. And man, is this a goofy costume. Like I know from the first appearance of of Catwoman, which you'll learn about, you know, next week uh, on on the main show, is uh, basically just a dress, I think. Uh, And this is not far off. I will say it shows a lot more leg uh, than a standard dress because it's sort of, uh, so it's, it's a purple sort of um uh unitard uh with long sleeves and uh the bottom is you know it's it's like like a briefs sort of cut but there's 
like a skirt on the front and the back, but not on the sides. And she's of course got a cat sort of headdress, a cat cowl, and uh, and a green cape. Uh, I, I think the cape is goofy. I don't think she needs a cape, but she has one. Uh, it's a real goofy costume just in general. Oh, and then she's of course got you know calf high boots. So not of course. I mean, why would why would you think of course? Of course she's got to have calf high boots. No, uh, but she has calf high boots. Uh, that I guess are supposed to be black. And she has black hair. A lot of black hair uh, on her head. Uh, they both shriek. Uh, the two reporters shriek. Say, Catwoman! Because, ah, you know, she's like a uh, a criminal. And Catwoman says, I should have known it would be you, Vicky Vale. After our last encounter, you know what I can do. So I advise you to listen to my next words very carefully. We learn a little bit later in this issue uh, from an editor's note that uh, they last sort of crossed paths in Batman 355, which is you know almost 30 issues before this, so it's it's been it's been quite a while, quite a while, like uh, over two years. So that's that's cool. Catwoman said to you know heed their, her next words carefully, but then she doesn't really say anything. She just leaps over the two reporters and uh, to the Panther that has been in the sidelines not doing anything and we learned that it is Catwoman's pet panther Diablo who uh, has had escaped from her apartment which is not a proper housing for a panther if, if you know anything about cats but Catwoman's presence calms uh, Diablo down uh, into, into a little harmless kitty cat meow 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 Catwoman is about to take her uh, panther and continue what she calls a larger hunt, their their larger hunt um, that they were uh, that they're working towards together. When Vicky Vale, you know, says you have to tell us what's what's going on, you know, for the paper, and Catwoman says, "Unhand me, woman!" and and raises her whip to you know lash out at Vicky Vale when uh, a batarang hits it out of her hand. Um, Batman has arrived on the scene. Uh, which is when we learn that you know they last cross paths, Vicky Vale and Batman and Catwoman in 355 uh, from from editor Len Wein. Catwoman and Batman get into sort of a, a small scuffle, and when Vicky Vale you know stops and says, "Stop it, Batman! She wasn't trying to hurt us. She was just looking after her panther, looking for and protecting her panther," uh, and says that it's been injured. And uh, Robin. Says, yeah, this cat doesn't seem very feisty. Uh, way more, you know, uh, slow than than the ones I've seen in the circus. Because at this point in time, in time, Jason Todd was given basically the exact same backstory as Dick Grayson, uh, which is bad writing. Um, so Catwoman reveals that her panther has been poisoned by who else? Dark Wolf. So they are connected. She then tells the story of why. Dark Wolf would would even want to poison her panther. Uh, she was uh, living in Egypt for a while, and she happened to be there at the same time that uh, the Egyptian president Sadat was uh, sending peace overtures to Israel, uh, saying, you know, like, let's stop fighting, let's be friends. And a friend that she had made, an official with the Department of Antiquities, was concerned about the possible reprisals from less tolerant Arab factions. Syrian terrorists had already staged several strikes on Egypt. 
uh, and intelligence had learned of a possible attack on the National Museum of Antiquities itself. And Catwoman loves antiquities and, you know, rare things that are valuable. And the Syrian sort of terrorist that was tasked with, you know, doing this strike on the, the museum was Dark Wolf. Uh, Catwoman decided to do something about it because at this time she's sort of half criminal, half hero sometimes, depending on what's going on. Just like in regular comics, you know, just in modern comics. During her prevention of his uh, attack on the museum, Diablo the Panther mauled his face, uh, which then had him uh, donning this sort of wolf mask that he now wears to cover up the scars on his face. Before that, he was wearing a sort of the stereotypical sort of head wrap on top, head wrap over the mouths that you see in movies and other media of Arabic assassins or uh, agents or, you know, terrorists, stuff like that. Uh, So now he wears this sort of wolf mask to go along with his moniker dark wolf and then um this uh catwoman um says something that's kind of weird but also weirdly poignant to what's going on right now uh, with israel which i'm not going to comment on because this is not a political news or discussion podcast and it's a very very complicated situation over there Uh, But she says, since his wounds run far deeper than the skin, there are now three things he hates even more than Jews. Egypt, me, and Diablo the Panther. We then cut to Gotham International Airport, where uh, we are at the security line, and a man is bypassing security, although a TSA agent is asking him to, you know, stop and go through the metal detector like everyone else. Uh, He reveals under his coat is the costume of dark wolf um and he you know sort of shoots off some rounds in the airport and then flees out a gate that does not have a plane attached he then uh, rushes across the tarmac to a plane that is boarding and it's fun like you can see how much times have changed because these people are boarding just with the stairs up against the the plane not down any sort of jetway or anything like that so it's kind of funny so he hops up the stairs and onto the plane and takes the whole plane hostage um including the pilots and all the passengers and stuff like that we then cut back to crime alley where catwoman and batman and robin and vicky vale and that other reporter whose name i forgot her last name was remark but it was spelled with a q uh and catwoman tells the story of how diablo got poisoned um and why dark wolf is here in gotham in the first place why he attacked the egyptian embassy in gotham rather than in literally any other place maybe closer to egypt or in egypt itself you know prior to his attacking of the egyptian embassy in gotham he went to catwoman's uh apartment how he knew where catwoman's apartment was stop asking so many questions I can't tell you that um, because the writers also didn't tell me that. Um, so so I don't know. I'm sorry. But he breaks in and uh, Diablo apparently doesn't get free reign of the uh, apartment while Catwoman is gone. 
Uh, he is on a chain leash, which is pretty uncool. Like if you're going to keep a big jungle cat in your apartment, you should maybe not, you know, chain it up. It seems a little bit uncool. Maybe that's the reason why you shouldn't be keeping exotic cats um, that are bigger than a man. He goes in uh, to uh, Catwoman's fridge and grabs some sort of vague meat out and uh, sprinkles cyanide all over it. Uh, Catwoman hypothesizes from his suicide pill and feeds it to Diablo. Catwoman says that Dark Wolf likely was hoping that Diablo would either die or, in its pain from the poison, attack uh, Catwoman when she arrived back home. Uh, Diablo did neither. Uh, he broke through his chain through the sort of stress and pain of the poison and jumped out the window and then went on to attack that mugger and victim from the prologue and uh catwoman says you know that's something that the cat will have to pay for i mean batman says that's something that the cat will have to pay for you know attacking those two people and killing them and robin says i don't think so batman uh because it looks like he's already died and catwoman's very sad she she picks up Diablo's big head and puts it against her head and cries tears. Uh, they then hear over the Batmobile's police radio that a plane has been taken hostage. The police radio doesn't say anything about uh, who has taken the plane hostage and all of the people on board hostage, but it does say that it wants enough fuel to reach Damascus. Syria, so they put two and two together that it must be Dark Wolf. They, you know, rush to the airport uh, where Gordon is there. He's, you know, first he's like, wait, Catwoman, like she's wanted for crimes. And Batman's like, that'll have to wait, Jim Gordon. For whatever reason, we need Catwoman here. Uh, which, I mean, I guess they technically they do use her for the, the plan to get Dark Wolf, so but, I mean, it's not like Batman couldn't have figured out another way to do it without Catwoman, a known criminal. Uh, so they come up with this plan that uh, they're going to radio to Dark Wolf that he needs one more flight attendant to prevent panic among the hostages as a sort of, you know, way of like, hey, we want everything to go smoothly here. Keeping the passengers calm will be beneficial, so take this another flight attendant. And he says, that's fine, but it has to be a woman, and there can only be one of them. And so, Selena Kyle, who is Catwoman's secret identity, don't tell anybody, uh, she's a woman. So she dons a flight attendant's uh, uniform and uh, goes on the plane. She gets frisked down by Dark Wolf. She has to restrain herself from just clawing his freaking face off. And uh, Batman sort of sneaks under the plane and onto the wing of the plane. And while Dark Wolf is, you know, busy with Selena Kyle, the flight attendant, uh, Jim Gordon radios to the pilots that say that they need to fly low and at minimum speed in, to maintain altitude, I mean, to maintain altitude and, you know, not fall out of the sky uh, because Batman is going to be on the wing. And, I mean, Batman's cool, but he can only he can only hold on. He can't hold on to a plane that's flying at regular cruising speed. Like, that's that's insane. Dark Wolf comes back into the cockpit. And, you know, why is it taking so long? Uh, why, are they, why is it taking so long for this fuel? And the pilot's like, it always takes this long. Dark Wolf is like, you're a liar. 
and he says, they're up to something. I'm going to learn what it is. So he's going to go outside. He's going to open the door and look outside. If he does that, though, he'll see Batman. So Robin rushes out of the control tower and uh, down onto the tarmac. And uh, Selena Kyle, as her as the flight attendant, says, look, someone's coming. Uh, and Darkwolf says, ah, it's Batman's partner, Robin. So he must be trying to avenge Batman's death. I killed him earlier, remember? He didn't kill him. He didn't even check. Dark Wolf then demands that the pilots take off. Uh, Batman, or not Batman, Robin has this sort of thing like, oh, they're taking off, but it's taking too long. I gotta, like, sort of make it look like I'm running as fast as I can, but I'm not. Uh, so he does that, and the plane takes off, and he says, you know, like, it's up to you and Catwoman now, Batman, or he thinks it. Uh, Batman is having a little bit of difficulty holding on, because, uh, I mean, even at this minimum speed, it's still a lot. Selena Kyle, flight attendant, uh, talks to uh, the man next to the sort of emergency exit, uh, not to give him the spiel about, like, hey, do you feel like you're of sufficient ability to be the exit row person uh which i've never gotten to be it's kind of a bummer because like all that extra leg room i've got these long dancers legs and uh could really use that extra leg room but uh i just don't want to pay for it because i'm poor but he looks outside and sees batman pointing to the emergency handle uh so selena kyle asks him to uh without saying anything change his seat uh, but at just that moment, as this man is changing his seat, Dark Wolf comes out of the cockpit and says, Halt! Right there. Don't make another move, guy who's changing seats. Why are you doing that? But as he's, you know, going to interrogate this passenger, uh, Selena Kyle opens up the emergency door, which you're not supposed to do. It's illegal. Uh, you can get in a lot of trouble for doing that while the plane is in motion. Uh, and gets Batman inside and also jumps at uh dark wolf with her i guess she must just have really long fingernails because her fingers look like they end in claws um they don't look like very uh attractive hands not that i'm sort of a a hand expert or anything like that but they're drawn very like hag like like you're she's an evil witch in a swamp or something but she claws at dark wolf's face and uh Batman comes inside, and Dark Wolf is shocked because he thought that Batman was dead because he doesn't check uh, bodies for death. Uh, Batman and Dark Wolf, they fight. They're fighting. There's a lot of fighting uh, between Dark Wolf and Batman. Uh, Batman seems to have gotten the upper hand, but Dark Wolf... uh, which I, I guess I haven't explained what Dark Wolf looks like. He's got tan pants on, a red shirt with the sleeves rolled up, and a bandolier basically of all grenades. Uh, so that's that must be his weapon of choice because he's been using grenades like crazy. He pulls one off of his bandolier and pulls the pin. He's like, we're all going to die on this plane. Uh, but... Catwoman, you know, thinking back to her poor Diablo who died, the ferocity of this pain and this anguish, she jumps with such panther-like force and speed, grabs the grenade out of his hand and jumps, well, not jumps out, I guess. She doesn't jump out of the plane, but the wind from the emergency exit being open pulls her out 
with its force. And uh, Batman yells, Catwoman, no! But uh, she is already falling to her death. Uh, so Batman throws his parachute that he had, uh, just in case he fell off the plane, obviously, uh, out hoping that it can get to her before she hits the ground. If she, you know, does the sort of spread out thing that will stop uh, her from falling as fast. Ten seconds later, the uh, people on the plane hear the grenade go off. They don't know whether or not Catwoman or Selina Kyle, I guess at this point, was able to get the grenade away from her, toss it away, uh, or if she was able to get the parachute. They don't know anything. And while Batman is sitting there just anguished with the thoughts, uh, Dark Wolf pulls out a gun and shoots him in the lower ribs. But because of his anguish over um, Catwoman, he, you know, he wants vengeance, and he doesn't feel a thing when he puts the beat down on Dark Wolf. He beats him down so good, he beats him down into the pilot cockpit door and uh, busts it off its hinges and hits the pilot in the back of the head, knocking him out. The co-pilot has been tied to his chair the whole time, and the pilot's been the only one flying. Now no one is flying the plane, so the plane is now plummeting. Uh, it does a barrel roll. It's it's not a good time. Passengers are upside down. They're not having a fun time. Uh, Batman finally puts the uh, final beat down. Uh, it says a last savage punch with nearly fatal force. God, that nearly is doing a lot of work there because... Fatal Force would make Batman a murderer. And we know. I guess we don't know. This is Earth-1 Batman. Earth-1 Batman, no murder. Earth-2 Batman, which is what's considered the Golden Age Batman uh, before the introduction of like Earth-1, Earth-2, this kind of thing. He's the one who loves to kill people. Earth-1 Batman, no kill. Earth-2 Batman, yes kill. Uh, so just before the plane uh, is about to crash into the ground, Batman slides into the pilot's seat and uh, pulls up good enough that it's it's a it's a rough landing, but it is uh, soft enough that everyone is okay. Uh, you know, Dark Wolf has been knocked out. He's got a new set of scars on his, or I guess claw marks on his face. They're not scars yet. From Catwoman uh, ferociously clawing at him uh, to go alongside Diablo's scars from earlier. Batman rushes out of the plane into the forest to try and find Catwoman. Uh, he is unsuccessful because then we cut to the epilogue, which is uh, interesting as well. Why, why that's a thing in this issue. Prologue and epilogue. Uh, to an hour before dawn. They are talking, or Batman and Robin are talking to Gordon and Vicki Vale and um, the other reporter. And uh, Gordon is saying, nothing reported yet, Batman, but she won't. She went over very dense forest. We may never know. Batman then asks Gordon uh, if he's taking care of the panther. Bat Gordon doesn't even know that they captured the panther. And Batman says, never mind, Gordon. I'll take care of it alone. I owe her that much. Then uh, Vicky Vale's uh, reporter partner, who I have now been reminded is named Julia Remark, with a Q-U-E at the end, uh, says, Without knowing anything about their past, I know what the last line of this story should be. I can feel it coming off him in hot waves, but it's a last line that will never be written. And someone asks, And what is that line, Julia? And she says, He loved her. 
And then it cuts to Batman uh, standing over the body of Diablo and uh, sort of narration boxes. uh, And just before dawn in Crime Alley, it is true. More true than Julia or anyone else could possibly know. He loved her. End. Uh, And we see sort of a ghostly image of uh, Catwoman, you know, that you see in sort of television and movies when someone's died. You know, they look up in the sky and they sort of superimposed over the sky in a sort of transparent, translucent sort of image of someone you've just lost. And uh, sad. Catwoman's dead. Oh, no, Catwoman's dead now. Batman will never get to tell her he loves her, ever. And they'll never almost get married. Uh, but that's the that's the end of Batman uh, 382. Which is weird because I clicked next, and the one it wants me to read next is Batman 381, which is confusing. But uh, no, the next one will be 383, uh, which is how comics go. The numbers get bigger. Uh, But yeah, that was certainly interesting. Uh, 1980s Batman uh, is interesting. I was hoping for maybe a, a more traditional Batman story with maybe some rogues gallery to start with the first Batman story, but, I mean, that's just the way it goes. That's the publishing order for you, you know? We get a one-off villain named Dark Wolf, who is just a Syrian terrorist. That's his whole shtick. But, uh, but let's move on. Let's move on, shall we? To, uh, Flash number 344, uh, released January 10th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. Uh, only one debut in this one, since we have already met the flash uh the second flash barry allen in uh last episodes uh justice league of america uh we are meeting for the first time on the podcast but not his actual debut kid flash wally west uh barry allen's uh i don't know if barry and iris are married at this point but uh, his nephew in eventually his nephew if not already his nephew kid flash wally west Iris West's nephew. Uh, So let's get into the issue summary with the authors and all the sort of writing credits. Uh, We have writer Carrie Bates, penciler Carmine Infantino, who is the original artist for The Flash, so that's fun. Anchor Frank McLaughlin, letterer David Cody Weiss, and colorist Carl Gafford. Uh, So let's get into this issue. And let's start with the cover. We have a a close-up of the Flash with his hand on his uh, face, you know, and he's got a thought bubble that says, after all these years, how how could Kid Flash betray me in court? Uh, And the background is all in black and white. And in the background, we have uh, the adult Flash, Barry Allen, uh, kind of putting his arm around Kid Flash back when Kid Flash had the exact same costume as the Flash. And in the sort of foreground, uh, we have the now you know, teenage Kid Flash Wally West in his new costume um, with the... It, you'll know it if you've seen uh, Young Justice. 
I was blanking on the name of the show, Young Justice, uh, where the cowl, ha- like the top half of the cowl is, is cut off so you can see his, his red hair and it's yellow. Uh, but obviously this is in black and white, so you can't see that. And he's got his hand on a Bible, you know, taking the oath, you know, he swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, that kind of sort of situation as he's being sworn in as a witness. And the title for this issue of The Flash is The Trial Continues. Uh, now, this is the fifth part of uh, a storyline called The Trial of the Flash, which is a multi-part story about the trial of the Flash after he has killed the reverse Flash in issue 324, so about 20 issues before this. Uh, not about, exactly 20 issues before this. And it is an event that took place uh during the wedding of Barry Allen to Fiona Webb, uh, who would be his second wife if they had gotten married. People who have any familiarity with The Flash are probably wondering, well, that's crazy. Barry Allen is married to Iris West. Uh, True, but unfortunately in issue 275, uh, so about, not about, exactly 69 issues before Flash 344, which is the one we're covering, obviously, Iris West was killed by the Reverse Flash at a masquerade party. Uh, spoiler alert uh, for anyone for a, you know, 40-year-old comic book, uh, probably older than that even. Um, so he is, gets, he gets you know, he gets into a relationship and gets engaged and eventually to be married almost to Fiona Webb, a, a woman who is never talked about again basically after this killing of the Reverse Flash. So... Back to the trial. This is the fifth part. The previous four parts were weirdly not really about what was going on at the trial. Um, there were some trial parts, but a lot of it was dealing with was the Flash dealing with this um, villain that had been tricked into being a villain by uh, the Flash's rogues gallery. Pe- uh, villains like Captain Cold, uh, Captain Boomerang. It's weird that there's multiple captains. Uh, Trickster, Weather Wizard. They tricked this guy into thinking that the Flash was his enemy, and they gave him this super-powered suit, and he was, you know, causing a lot of problems with for the Flash. Uh, and then Flash also had to deal with the fact that his lawyer believed that he was the main reason for her father, a police officer, being killed by a villain, uh, and that was the storyline that took place the previous two issues to this one. So that's all fine and dandy, and things are gonna, you know, things are going. Well, maybe, possibly, in this manslaughter. Actually, not manslaughter. It's been bumped up to second-degree murder, I believe, um, because the the state is saying that the Flash did it on purpose, not on accident. So it's a new day of the trial, and there's rumors of a surprise secret witness for the state, uh, and everyone's wondering what it is. The, the witness is brought in under, you know, cloak, uh, to not hide his identity, and at the end of issue 343, the one prior to this one, it's revealed to be Kid Flash. And you're like, why would the Kid Flash, you know, cro- uh, testify against the Flash, Barry Allen, his good friend and mentor? Um, we'll get into that in this issue, so let's start the issue itself. We have, uh, the first page is uh, Barry sitting at the, you know, defendant's table thinking to himself i still can't believe it i'm sitting here watching kid flash being sworn in as a witness for the prosecution after all we've been through together over the years how could wally testify against me his uncle even though you know his wife wally's 
uh, aunt is dead. Um, he's still technically his uncle, I guess. Um, you know, his mentor, stuff like that. It's it's it feels like a betrayal. Uh, so we see Kid West getting you know sworn in. He says, you know, solemnly swear to tell the truth. He says, I do, and. The prosecutor, you know, says Kid Flash, former Teen Titan and superhero, now permanently retired. Wally West retired as Kid Flash in New Teen Titans uh, number 39 in February of 1984, which was the beginning of the Judas Contract storyline uh, or, or near the beginning of it uh, that we talked about last episode or maybe two episodes ago uh, in the Teen Titans issue. Uh, so he has been retired since then to focus on uh, normal life and college and stuff like that. So he has come back as Kid Flash uh, to uh, to testify. And so I hadn't really thought about it, but something that Barry's lawyer says right after Kid Flash is sworn in, she says, I'm sure the DA subpoenaed him, Flash, no matter how much Kid Flash hated showing up here today. He had no choice. Now, that made me wonder... A, I mean, how is Barry on trial in the first place as the Flash? The Flash is not uh, a real identity. He would technically have to be on trial as as Barry Allen. I'm sure maybe that was covered why he'd be put on trial as uh, his superhero identity, but that's not important. But why? How did the DA subpoena Kid Flash? Because I mean, his identity isn't known to the public. So where did he send the subpoena? And, and if, if Wally West isn't running around as Kid Flash, how is a sort of service processed processor? Yeah, that's what they're called, the people who deliver subpoenas. You know, it's like the ones where you've been served, that kind of things. How did they find him? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. It's not said. It's not said how he, he was subpoenaed, but he was subpoenaed. Uh, so we then go into a, a series of flashbacks uh Barry, you know, kind of reminiscing about um, the good old days uh, when him and Barry, or him and, obviously he's Barry, him and Wally were partners in crime fighting. And we do get uh, a series of flashbacks to legitimate issues of The Flash previously. So we get a origin story of, of Wally West, Kid Flash, uh, from issue 110 of The Flash, uh, which will all I'll just kind of... It'll be kind of like a, a little bit of a Silver Age uh, edition uh, of the of the podcast, I guess, for this one issue, uh, because a lot of these take place in the Silver Age. So in issue 110, which we're getting a little... Uh, probably maybe a little summarized. Maybe it's legitimately the entire thing. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but... Wally West is visiting his aunt Iris in Central City, and he's a big fan of The Flash. She brings him over to uh, Barry Allen's apartment because Iris West knows that Barry Allen and The Flash are friends. She does not know that they are the same person. Um, And Wally West is hoping to meet The Flash, and Barry says, yeah, Iris, that's fine. You know, just leave him here with me, and and I'll contact The Flash and see if he can meet. And, I mean, Iris has got to go to work at Picture News, so... That she's fine with that. So Barry does this thing that is so very, you know, late golden age, very silver age thing, where <laughs> he has to use his powers uh, in in just the most insane way. 
So he says he says that the Flash is in that room in, in Barry's apartment. He uses it for a headquarters. And then as Wally is walking towards the office door, Barry shoots the costume out of his ring because he has his you know ring where he keeps his costume, puts it on, runs to the door, opens the door, goes inside the office, and then closes the door, which there's got to be an easier way. Because, like, he says, I moved so fast, he didn't even see the door opening and closing before he reached it. Here he comes. Now, I, like, I'm not a physicist, and obviously this is comic books, so they have their own rules of physics, because obviously the Flash can't exist in real life. But I just feel like no matter how fast you're opening a door, like, the door itself does not have super speed, because you just have to pull it. I just think, like, it would have been better. I actually think it would have been more impressive if Barry had ran outside, down all the stairs of his apartment, around to the other side of his apartment outside, up the wall, through the window, into the room. I think that would have been more impressive. Or vibrating through the wall. But obviously, that kind of stuff, I don't know if that was in the sort of comic book writer's Flash's tool book, like if, if Carmine Infantino and, and um, the people who created Flash and, or, and were still working on it at 110 had that idea of something that Barry could do. But um, they, they do now. Uh, but I mean, if this is a they, if this is a shot by shot remake, obviously they can't be like, well, Barry did this instead. But so uh, Wally is so very excited to meet the Flash and uh, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm a really big fan. I, I can't wait till I tell all the cats back home. And uh, Flash, being uh, an old person in his, I'm assuming, late 20s or early 30s, is like, what are cats? And Molly's like, oh, you dang square. That means kids, my friends, my compatriots. After learning slang, uh, Barry decides to tell Wally how he got his speed. Uh, he tells him about uh, one fateful night, and he goes into uh, Barry Allen's apartment. Uh, he has a laboratory in there because Barry Allen is a scientist, criminal sci- criminology scientist, um, a, p- a police scientist, if you want to call it that. Um, and he tells Wally about the freak lightning bolt that crashed through his window and uh, electrified chemicals, which were then spilled onto him, the Flash, Barry Allen, which then gave him super speed. And what should happen right as he says that? Another lightning bolt comes through the window, strikes chemicals, and they fall onto Wally West. And, you know, the Flash is like, well, that's super weird. I wonder if it did the same thing, you know, the same thing that happened to me two years ago. And so he decides to test Wally. To do that, he challenges Wally to a race, and obviously Wally's like, well, I'll never win. Um, But they're running, and they're both running at basically the same speed. And the Flash, you know, thinks, I'm not uh, not really holding back at all. And Wally's like, wow, that's weird. He must be holding back. Um, So the Flash explains to Wally that Wally now has super speed. And, you know, they do another test where Barry throws a ball uh, and and Wally runs and catches it before it hits the wall. Uh, so he's got super speed, just like Barry. 
Barry then, uh, using his super speed, makes uh, Wally a costume because, of course, Wally can't just go back to being a normal kid now that he's got super speed. He has to he has to devote his life to crime fighting, uh, even if he doesn't necessarily want to. Uh, obviously, Wally wants to be just like the Flash, so being a superhero is awesome. And so he gives uh, Barry gives Wally a uh, ring with his costume in it, and the costume uh, stupidly looks just like the Flash. Um, and so he calls him uh, Kid Flash. Uh, he, he's a little mini-me. The Flash then has a thought bubble, which is uh, sort of referring to himself in the third person, uh, unless he does like a weird split personality where he says, Barry Allen has to get back to work. Well, it's like, dude, you're Barry Allen. That's weird. That's like if I thought Nick needs to record a podcast or something like that. It's uh, it's weird, but uh, I guess it just helps everyone remember that Barry Allen is the Flash. Uh, he's you know, he uh, the Flash speaking, uh, not thinking inside his head. You know, tells Wally that he's got to go for a while, and for Wally to practice his speed uh, until he masters it. While kind of hanging out in Barry's apartment, he overhears on the radio that uh, some dangerous animals have escaped from the zoo. Uh, and he says, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like the Flash. I'm supposed to be uh, a hero. I'm supposed to practice my speed, too. So I might as well go deal with those dangerous animals. He uh, does that. He runs across the city. He beats a super fast sports car. He helps an old man cross the street because there's so much traffic. And then he gets to the zoo and is going to deal with an escaped lion. And he does this by pushing the cage uh, on wheels that the lion, uh, or maybe some animal, was in, uh, and then pushing it uh, towards the lion, and then pushing the lion into the cage at super speed. This is a part that I don't get about speedsters. Do they have some form of super strength? Because, think about it, he could um, push against, or like, run at this cage at super speed but it is a non-moving object and basic laws of physics objects at rest tend to stay at rest until acted on by an outside force that's fair kid flash is the outside force but i feel like that collision of a an object sitting still and him would just crush his body uh so like do they have a form of super speed because other or not super speed super strength because otherwise i just don't understand or invulnerability because otherwise i don't see how he doesn't bust all of his bones and even if he wants to you know say not collide with it at rapid speeds if he's at a dead stop and it's at a dead stop what makes him stronger to move it because like i feel like just moving really fast doesn't necessarily mean you're you're do you're you know causing more uh force onto something but maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm understanding physics wrong uh, like I said, not a physicist, but it just always confuses me. Um, so he captures the lion. Good job, Barry. Sorry, Wally. Good job, Wally. He looks just like Barry. It's very confusing to me. Um, and then he comes upon the bear, the other animal that has been let loose at this zoo. And he sort of does a tornado around it, causing air pressure to lift it up. And he sort of, you know, tornado spins it into uh, another cage. Uh you know, saving the day. Uh, Barry comes onto the scene having heard about the uh, escaped animals and sees that Kid Flash has done it. And 
Barry then thinks, I know now that I will never be alone again in my struggle against evil and injustice. I've got someone to fight at my side, Kid Flash, but I'd better not let him see me. I want to change back to Barry Allen. So he does. He, um, we then cut to later in the day. And uh, this part is confusing uh, because Iris says to Wally, you say that you know who this amazing new Marvel Kid Flash is, but you can't tell me or Barry. Why even bring it up, Wally? I mean, I get you're a kid, but if you're going to be so like steadfast in saying, I can't tell you who it is because it's a secret forever between me and my friend Mr. Flash, why even bring up the fact that you know who Kid Flash is? Um, but it's a it's a early Silver Age story, so logic doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. We then cut back to the courtroom very briefly while the Flash thinks about uh, another memory uh, that he had with the Reverse Flash. Not the Reverse Flash. Oh my gosh, um, Kid Flash. The reason I thought that was because this is after Wally has gotten his new uh, costume. Uh, which we'll also learn about how that happened uh, in this issue. But this story that uh, Barry is thinking of or reminiscing on is from issue uh, of The Flash, issue 149. So several, several, several years ago, but uh, about 40, 50, no, let's see, 110 is when Wally West came in, 149. So about 39 issues um, since Wally West has been The Flash. He's gotten his new costume in the meantime. Um, like I said, uh, which we'll learn about later, but, uh, he is investigating, uh, or was investigating a, a strange energy in Blue Valley where he lives with his parents and, uh, it kind of transported him to this other planet, uh, where he learns, uh, about, uh, stuff that is going on there. And then he learns about a K-10 gang who are planning to blow up a bank. Uh, it's not super important what they're blowing up on this planet, but, the important thing to know is that the explosion from this bomb will sort of shockwave through the, if you want to call it multiverse, if you want to call it whatever, and uh, grow in power by doing that, and then uh, it will explode at a much greater force uh, than it did on this planet on Earth, probably destroying it or, or destroying a, a large chunk of it. So while he investigates this, uh, and he uh, attempts to catch the K-10 gang, uh, but they shoot him with a laser. This is a, a highly technically advanced um, race that communicates by telepathy. Everybody has telepathy. Even Wally West has telepathy while he is on this planet. Um, and so they shoot him with a laser, but it only grazes him on the head uh, because he can't run as fast. Like, he was running just as fast as their vehicle, so they can easily see him and shoot him. And uh, so he they get away. Uh, Wally West then comes back, you know, either running at a certain speed or, you know, vibrating his body at a certain frequency, which is how the Flash travels through, you know, universes, um, time, stuff like that. And he, Wally West goes back and tells Barry Allen all this, but as he is explaining this, uh, Wally West collapses... Uh, and, and, uh, wakes up uh, a little bit later or like, you know, basically at that same moment and, and has amnesia. He doesn't seem to remember who he is or who the flash is or any of this stuff. And, and he doesn't remember how to get back to this planet, which is the important part. Um, uh, we then cut back to the 
courtroom for just a second where we see the prosecuting attorney asking the Flash, or asking Wally West, I should say, sorry, on the witness stand, that the Flash has been, the Flash had his super speed much longer than than um, than Wally West, so he would be more proficient in super speed than even Wally West. And Wally West answers, yes. Uh, we then cut back to the Flash's memory, and Barry Allen, in an attempt to jog the Kid Flash's uh, memory, takes him to some adventures or some places where they had uh, many adventures. Um, you know, he, he talks about a, a fighting the going to the land of golden giants in issue 120, uh, very very early in their tenure as a, as a you know partnership. Um, we then uh, see uh, a panel where it's explained that in issue 135 of the Flash, um, Wally West. It, it's such a weird way to give him a new costume. He, he gets a new costume. He gets the classic yellow on top, red pants, yellow boots, uh, with the with the cowl, the half cowl that allows his hair to come out. Um, and basically, what it boils down to is that. Barry Allen, the Flash, was doing some experiments uh, with this machine, and then uh, he got loaded with all this energy, and Kid Flash ran up, and he got zapped by this energy, and it changed his costume from the one that looks just like the Flash's, but smaller, to the yellow and red one, uh, primarily yellow one, that we see, or that most people think of when they think of Kid Flash. It's, uh, it's very silly, it's very Silver Age. Um, but it's for the better because your sidekick shouldn't look just like you and smaller. It'd be really funny if Robin was just running around in a tiny bat suit. That'd be silly. Uh, and we called him Kid Batman or Kid Bat uh, or something like that. Bat Kid, you know, something down like that. But Kid Flash is kind of a stupid name. Um, anyways, uh, Barry Allen, the Flash, takes uh, Wally West to uh, ha- uh, the doctor uh, as as Wally West. Um to be like, hey, this guy, he's got amnesia. I found him. He's Wally West. Uh, Wally West's parents, uh, you know, come and get him, come pick him up, and they thank the Flash. And the Flash leaves uh, the Wests, uh, Wally West and his parents, watching TV. And as he's walking away from their house, he's thinking, hmm, they were watching TV. You know what? I've got to get to a TV studio fast. And what he does is Barry Allen... Uh, goes to the TV studio and uh, gets in front of the camera and takes off his mask, revealing that it is uh, that he is Barry Allen, that the Flash is Barry Allen, which I got very confused when that happened because I was like, well, wait, Barry Allen's identity is, uh, you know, a secret because otherwise he'd be on trial as Barry Allen, not as the Flash, um, which will it'll get explained um, later. But... Wally West, seeing this, shocks him so badly that his memory comes back to him. Uh, he then meets up with Barry. Uh, they they travel to uh, Ikora, 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 whatever the... I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a made-up word for a made-up planet. Uh, they, they vibrate in such a way to get there. They then um, go and try to stop these bank robbers, uh, these you know, these burglars uh, who are trying to steal something with this, I've explained it, the bomb that'll, you know, radiate out and explode uh, our Earth. Uh, at first, they have some difficulty because everybody can read everybody else's minds, so they the bank robbers know exactly what the Flash and Kid Flash are going to do. Uh, they stop, they or thwart this, I should say, by keeping their minds perfectly blank, and then obviously they're super fast, so that's not a big deal. Pretty easy to handle. Uh... 
they capture the bank robbers, uh, and then they return back to Earth. And then Barry explains that he didn't reveal his secret identity to the whole world. He did it so quickly, at super speed, that the only person who could have seen it is someone else with super speed. So, uh, I guess he's just hoping, because at this point in time, the reverse Flash still exists, so I guess he's just hoping that the reverse Flash wasn't watching the news or whatever, you know? Um, but Wally could. Wally was the only one who could see it, so Wally's the only one that knows Barry Allen's secret identity. Um, because I don't know if at this time him and Iris are married, because this is a flashback from 149, so I, I don't know if, I can't remember what issue they got married in, um, but I don't think, I don't think they're married, but uh, she'll eventually learn it, his secret identity, but uh, Wally West says that he'll keep the secret, and uh, and that this is one adventure he'll never forget, and everybody laughs, they go, oh, because oh, 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 uh, he forgot, because he had amnesia. <laughs> um, the Flash is then sort of kind of shaken out of his reverie by his lawyer. Um, and she says, it looks like, you know, the prosecutor is ramping up and it doesn't look like it's going to be good. It's going to be something very, very bad. So we, uh, we cut to the prosecuting attorney and he says, please, Kid Flash, would you repeat that last answer so that the entire court can hear you? The question was, in your opinion, as an expert on the subject of super speed, on the day in question, was it necessary for Flash to apprehend Reverse Flash? He had to... Although, sorry, I should say, sorry. In order to op- apprehend Reverse Flash, he had to kill him. And Wally West looks down. He looks very sad. I mean, he's had a tough He's had a tough go of it. He's retired. He, he didn't think he'd ever be back in costume. He just wanted to focus on his regular life. And he says so- solemnly in all lowercase letters, so you can tell that he's like saying it very quietly. He says, no, no, it was not necessary to kill him. And then that's the end, and it, and it kind of says, next, the secret face of the Flash. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it in a while. But uh, uh, I guess really only in a month's time in publication history, but many issues in between, because uh, I think as a part of the trial, uh, they're going to have to reveal Barry's identity because the cover, just a little sneak preview, the cover of the next issue has, I presume, his lawyer's hand pulling up the Flash's mask. It's like in the process of pulling up the Flash's mask. So should be a good one. Should be exciting. Um, but that was kind of a nice little um, refresher for n- people new to the book at the time, if you think about it, because... 344, it's talking about issues from, you know, issue 110, issue 149, talks about something that happened in issue 120, one, uh, 135. It's it's a very much a refresher on why you should care, why it's a big deal that uh, Kid Flash is being a witness at the Flash's uh, trial, and not not in support of him, in, in on the opposition side, because he was forced to, he was subpoenaed. So... It's just it kind of adds some some weight to it uh, that is I think really good and also refreshes you up on on Kid Flash even though he is you know retired uh, so uh, that will obviously it won't last forever um, because he eventually comes back uh, but um, but yeah so that is that is the Flash number three forty four and that is uh, the episode uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it I, I thought it was I, I'm really enjoying 
doing these ones. And I mean, I enjoy the Golden Age ones too, but they get sometimes they get so silly that you need something maybe a little bit closer to what we now read, you know, something with more... And even these are kind of silly. Um, the Wonder Woman one was quite silly, I thought. Uh, but uh, remember to uh, rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and, and wherever you can. Um, tell so It helps spread the word. Uh, and if there's things that you don't like uh, about the show or some, some critiques you have, put those in the reviews. Or you can reach out to the show uh, on Instagram and Twitter at... Uh, I believe it's Issue Issue Podcast or Issue Issue Pod uh, on, on either of those platforms. Uh, there will be a link in the in the show notes, so or, or at least a, an actual spelling out of what it is in the show notes so you can find it there. Um, but until next time, I'll see you in just a few days on Monday for Issue by Issue Golden Age. Uh, but until then, uh, see you around.